Welcome to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. This week's message is Hills to Die On, Part 6, The Cross, recorded Sunday, October 16th, 2022. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending an email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Now here's Brendan Lang with today's message. Good morning, Third City. So good to have you here with us today. My name is Brendan. I'm new here on staff. This is my first sermon here on staff. Now I know why Scott and Dan are out this week, by the way. I thought they just wanted to give me an opportunity to preach, but clearly they just didn't want to follow after that. And so here I am, and I just want to take a minute here to introduce myself to you. First, I'm married to Rachel, who was up here just a few minutes ago. She's a good person. She really is. She, she normally doesn't tell such egregious lies about me, saying things like I like chick flicks and I watch the... I haven't seen The Bachelor in like two years. And so um, we've been married for 11 years. We got married right here on this platform 11 years ago. It's hard to believe how fast time has flown since then. We have two boys, Hayden and Scotty. Uh, you might have seen them running in circles in the plaza, sliding on the floor, squawking at the top of their lungs, and get used to that. Uh, we moved here from the Chicago land a few months ago. When I tell that, pe- that to people, they're usually like, wow, that, that must be a big adjustment. I'm like, yeah, it is. But I grew up in small town, small farm Iowa, and so just having stoplights and a Starbucks, or better yet, Story Coffee House, is a win for me. And that leads me to another thing. Since I'm from Iowa, that means, yes, I bleed the black and gold. You guys, you guys are more forceful than the first two services. We'll see how this goes. Uh, I am an Iowa Hawkeye. Um, now I'm sure they definitely won't let me preach here again. Uh, are you getting all this on camera, by the way? I want to make... Hey, I, I told them they could not... They keep playing that slide. That picture haunts me. We don't win often in Iowa, but I like to think that it helps us build character. That's something you can remember while you figure things out in Lincoln as well. <laughs> you guys talk. I like this. We're going we're gonna to have some fun today. I thought we had a lot of fun in our last service. You guys don't even know, but if you do, you know. We're going to have some fun today. Uh, last thing I think you should know about me is that I love the Bible. I love to read the Bible. I love to talk about it. I love to help other people understand it better. I love it first and foremost because it reveals truth to us about God. For that reason alone, it's worth digging into. But not just that, I also believe that the Bible is a masterpiece to be enjoyed. We normally don't think about the Bible that way. We normally think about it as something boring and dry and a chore to complete. When the truth is, it's a work of art to be enjoyed. It was written with skill and style and creativity and sophistication. We just miss these things because we aren't always familiar with its genres and languages and, and contexts and, and cultural backgrounds. And so as a teacher, what I love to do is just help bring Scripture to life, to, to introduce us to those background issues that can help us read it for all that it's worth. And in general, that's what you can expect from me when I teach. I'm going to talk about Scripture. I'm going to talk about background issues that can help us better understand Scripture. And of course, I'm going to apply Scripture. Because I believe that when we do the hard work of putting on ancient Israelite lenses and reading the Bible the way it was meant to be read, we'll discover that it actually has timeless wisdom that speaks truth to us today. And so with that, let's go ahead and dive into our scripture today. We're going to be looking at Mark 15, 16 through 41. I'm going to read this whole passage. We're going to pray and then we're going to jump in. Sound good? Now you go quiet on me. Sound good? All right. Let's do this. 
Mark 15, 16 through 41. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Let's pray. God, we come before you as your church, thankful for your word, thankful for how we can learn about you through your word. And of course, we're thankful for the word of life, the clearest representation of who you are, Jesus, who came down to earth, showed us who you are, what you're like in the flesh, showed us the life that we're called to live, walked that road, and gave us a model to imitate. God, now as we Dig into this story, this central story, where we learn your heart, your concern, and your call on our lives. God, would you teach us? If there's something I say that you don't want these folks to hear, would you just blot, blot that out from their minds? And if there's something I don't say that you do want them to hear, God, would, you put them, would your spirit lead them to hear those things? God, above all, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear who you are and the courage to live out what you ask of us. This we pray in your name. Amen.
Well, I love a good parade. I love the crowds. I love the fun, the sounds. Now that I'm a dad, I'm not so sure how I feel about candy, but I love the smiles that parades put on my kids' faces. I was bummed to miss the Harvest of Harmony parade a couple weeks ago. My rooted um, group had a prayer experience that morning. I'm not sure who scheduled that. But as the pastor in the group, I was like, I can't skip out on this. And so missed it. But in 2016, I was fortunate to witness one of the greatest parades in human history, actually the biggest parade in U.S. history. And if you know, you know, after 108 years of misery, after 108 years of coming close but never winning the big one, the Chicago Cubs, the lovable losers, broke the curse, won the World Series, and Cubs fans from all over the world poured into the city of Chicago. An estimated 5 million people showed up for the Cubs championship parade. To put that into perspective, Chicago, the city proper, has a, an estimated population of 2.7 million. That day, 5 million people crammed the streets and sidewalks of Chicago just to watch the Cubs roll by. It was something to be seen, something to be enjoyed, something I hope to experience someday in Iowa City. <laughs> someday, right? Nope, <laughs> nope. nope. <laughs> well, in the ancient world, they had great parades, too. Over the past year, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark. Tradition has it that Mark was written in the city of Rome, and in Rome, they had a special parade called a triumph. Everybody say triumph with me. One, two, three, triumph. All right, we're following along. Okay. A triumph was a parade which was thrown after great victories in battle. We throw parades after uh, teams win championships. They threw parades after military victories. Now, originally, these parades were designed to honor the military generals who were successful in the battle. But over time, by the time of Jesus, actually, these parades had begun to be thrown exclusively for emperors. They weren't just thrown for generals who were successful, successful at war. They were thrown for the kings who oversaw the war. By the time of Jesus, they became part of an emperor's coronation process, part of the process of his becoming king. And about the time Mark was written in 60 to 70 AD, they became linked to an emperor's deification. These parades became like a rung on a ladder that emperors would climb to become like one of the gods. And typically, the parades went a lot like this. First, the emperor would be dressed for the ceremony. He would be draped with a purple tunic and crowned with a laurel wreath and a scepter would be placed in his hand, just as you can see here. Once he was dressed for the ceremony, the emperor would parade through the forum to Capitoline Hill, literally Head Hill. These are places you can go see today. Secretly, I'd love to take you there sometime. It's not so secret now, but when you go to these places, it just helps bring the Bible to life to help you read it and see what it was like in these ancient times. After reaching the summit of Capitoline Hill, uh, the emperor would be offered a bowl of wine to drink, but he would refuse it and pour it out on an altar as a drink offering. Two officials would then join him on his right and on his left. Sometimes it was consuls. Here it was two sons. And then last but not least, a Roman triumph would end with the sacrifice of a bull. Here the family of Marcus Aurelius prepares to offer a bull at the end of his procession. That bull doesn't know what's in for him. So this was your typical Roman triumph. This is how emperors were celebrated, how they were uh, coronated, inaugurated, and in some instances, how they were practically even deified, thought to become like a god. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is all really interesting, but maybe you don't think this is interesting, but I bet you do, are wondering what this has to do with Jesus. 
Well, there's a reason why I point all of this out, and it's this. If we look closely at how Mark, writing from the city of Rome, remember, has structured the story of Jesus' crucifixion, we can see that Jesus' journey to the cross reads a lot like a Roman triumph. I mean, just compare the two. In a Roman triumph, an emperor would be decorated for the parade. Do you remember what the soldiers, the Roman soldiers did to Jesus? They put a purple robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff, a scepter. In a Roman triumph, the emperor would parade to Capitoline Hill. In Latin, head hill, that's what it means. Where was Jesus crucified? They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, the place of the head. In a Roman triumph, the emperor would then refuse to drink wine. What did Jesus do at Golgotha? Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. In a Roman triumph, the emperor would stand between two officials in Jesus' crucifixion. Where did he stand? Where was he placed? Between two rebels. And then a Roman triumph would end with a sacrifice. And of course, Jesus' crucifixion did end with a sacrifice, but it wasn't a bull, it wasn't a lamb, it wasn't an animal. It was the king of the Jews, the parade marshal himself, the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you see this? Are you tracking with me? Mark, writing from the city of Rome, has cast the story of Jesus' crucifixion in the form of a Roman triumph. Certainly this is how Roman Christians would have heard it with all these echoes of the triumph in the background. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus' crucifixion didn't happen this way. I'm sure it did. But I also believe that out of all the details Mark could have chosen to include in his retelling of the story, and he could have shared a lot, this happened over several hours. We just read this story in a matter of minutes. He shared these details because he wanted them and us to see something about Jesus. What did he want us to see? Well, first, and I think this is obvious, Mark wanted us to see that Jesus is the Son of God. Not Caesar, not the Roman emperor, Jesus Mark is making a counterclaim. In a world that saw the Roman emperor as the representation of God on earth, Mark says, no, this is. And this is consistent with the claim Mark has been making since the opening words of the book. Do you remember the opening words of the book of Mark? Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. From the very beginning, Mark has been pointing to Jesus saying, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. Not Caesar, not the Roman emperor, Jesus and even there, do you realize that those words in Mark 1.1 are a near verbatim uh, quotation of an inscription that was written about Caesar Augustus, the emperor, when Jesus was born? There is an emperor, there's an inscription called the Priene Calendar Inscription that says this, The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. What did Mark 1.1 say? The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Throughout this book, Mark is making a counterclaim. Caesar isn't the Son of God. Jesus is. Now, I should say that for most of this book, no one sees it. No human, at least. God, of course, sees it. What did God say at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration? You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Demons even see something of it. There's a demon in, in Mark 5 uh, who's called Legion, of all things. Uh, the, the title of a Roman military unit. He says, what do you want with me, son of the most high God? 
But throughout this book, no human makes this claim, not until after the crucifixion, when of all people, a Roman centurion, the type of person who would have followed behind Caesar at a Roman triumph and declared him to be Lord and God, now at the cross, the end of Jesus' own triumphal procession, saw the manner in which Jesus died and said, surely this man was the son of God. Just imagine how this would have sounded in first century Rome. This would have been subversive. It would have been explosive. It would have been a big deal for them. We shouldn't miss how big of a deal it is for us too. Because we have our own kings and gods to which we give our allegiance. We may not describe them this way. We may not think of them this way. That's part of the danger of the powers of this world. We aren't always aware when we've bound ourselves to them. But we have powers that we worship and to whom um, and who lord their power over us. I think of things like money and power and sex and pills, sports, our Hawkeyes and our Huskers. I think of our status, our appearance, the personas we create on social media. Some of you may not use social, but some of you do. And if you do, how much energy do you put into capturing that perfect picture or developing your following? How much dopamine do you rely on when you get all those likes? And how much does it let you down when you don't get enough? It can be our Lord and our God. And it's not just social, but it's also our jobs. What's the first thing you think about when you wake up? For me, I wish I could say that it's God. In a sense, I guess it is because I work at a church, but it's usually not me delighting in God or enjoying his company. It's, it's me thinking about what I'm going to say in a sermon like this or in a lesson or in a rhythm. We're slaves to our professional ambitions. And with an election just around the corner, I think we have to ask ourselves, how much allegiance have we given to whatever politician or party or cable news channel that we support? Not that politics aren't important. They are. Calling Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, is an inherently political statement. But is Jesus really Lord over my politics? Or have I somehow allowed my politics to shape how I think about Jesus? The crucifixion story forces us to come face to face with Jesus on the, on the cross and to decide for ourselves whether we worship him or something else. This is what Mark wants us to do, to come to a decision. What do you believe? Who do you worship? Do you worship Jesus or something else? You have a choice. And if you've never made that choice, I invite you to make this choice. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can make that confession. If you've never made that confession, one of the pastors here on the staff would love to help you make that confession. And you can actually seal it, that confession, with baptism. This morning we saw people get baptized right over here, and you can do that. We're going to have a baptism service in a couple of weeks. And if you've never done this, then why are you waiting? Go out to the hub and talk to them. They'll help you get signed up. You can make that choice. Mark wants you to make that choice. He wants you to see for yourself who Jesus really is. He's not just a friend. He's not just a teacher. He's not just your ticket to heaven. He's the king. He's in charge. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. He wants you to see that. Or at least that's part of what Mark wants us to see about Jesus. Because the story of the cross proclaims not only that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but also that he is the crucified Messiah, a crucified Son of God. What do I mean by that? 
Let's back up a bit and talk about the cross from a first century perspective. For us, the cross and Christ are virtually synonymous. We can hardly think of one without thinking of the other. It's like McDonald's and the Big, Big Mac, harvest season and allergy meds. I forgot all about how bad this is out here. They don't make enough Claritin. For us, for us, the cross and Christ go hand in hand. We shouldn't miss how laughable, how ludicrous, how upside down this pairing would have seemed to anyone in the Roman world. Saying you worshipped a crucified king would have sounded just as scandalous as saying you worshipped an alternative king. See, in first century Rome, crucifixion wasn't simply a means of execution. It was the most humiliating, degrading, shaming execution someone could suffer. Crucified victims were stripped down naked, totally exposed to the watching world. What did Stanton sing in that ridiculous video we watched a few minutes ago? It doesn't make a difference if you're naked or not. Something like that. Still can't believe that. (laughs) Newman was right. It does make a difference if you're naked or not. It makes a huge difference. It's shaming. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. That's what Romans did to their victims. They stripped them of their clothes and put them in places where everyone could see. And not only that, but crucifixion said something about your status. Not just anyone could be crucified. Only the lowest classes of society were crucified. People who had been enslaved and people who had been conquered. Typical citizens were spared this disgrace. In fact, the very mention of the word cross was considered a sin in Roman society. This quote from Cicero captures the typical Roman perspective. He writes this, The very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things, but the very mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. You didn't talk about crucifixion in first century Rome. I thought of it as disgusting, repulsive, a slur. There's a reason why Paul writes the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's because the idea of a crucified Messiah was ludicrous, outlandish, upside down, the very opposite of anything that was considered proper in that honor and shame society. And yet that's the king we meet in Mark. A crucified king. An upside down king. A king who found victory through defeat. Who gained honor through shame, who is exalted when he humbled himself. Jesus was not just an alternative king to Caesar. He was a fundamentally different type of king. He was a king who didn't just subvert the authority of Caesar, but he actually subverted the very structures upon which Caesar's authority rested because he didn't become king by powering up. He didn't take the crown through coup or conquest. He took the throne by powering down. Again, this had enormous implications back then. In time, it quite literally undid the empire of Rome from within. But I also believe that it has enormous implications for us today. Because if this is how Jesus became king, then this is also the nature of the kingdom. It's the call of his citizens, you and me. What did Jesus say in Mark 8, 34? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow after me. He didn't say whoever wants to be my disciple must pray this prayer, go get dunked, clear their conscience, and then go live their lives. No, he said whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
I point this out because I think as Christians today, we've too often forgotten the scandal of the cross. We recognize that the cross forgives us of our sins, and it's true that it does. We are forgiven of our sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. But too often we accept Jesus' forgiveness and proceed to live according to the principles of this world. We make requests like James and John who asked Jesus, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. When, as we just read, being at Jesus' right and his left doesn't look like sitting in glory as much as it looks like being crucified in shame. Yes, confessing Jesus as king saves us and brings us into a kingdom unlike any other. This is a kingdom you want to be a part of. But being citizens in the kingdom of God means living in the way of the king, the world's true king. It means putting ourselves last instead of first. It means powering down instead of powering up. It means denying ourselves out of love for others. So what does this look like? Well, to be clear, I, I believe this bears on every area of our life, from the public to the private. But to give you just a few ideas, at your schools, this might look like you making sure no one has to sit alone at the lunch table or standing up for someone despite what it might cost you and social points. In your families, this might look like you setting aside pride and bitterness. Some of you have parents and siblings and children you haven't spoken to in years. You're unwilling to forgive them. You're unwilling to apologize to them. You don't want to be the first one to set aside their pride and take that first step in restoring the relationship. Some of you need to go home today and make a phone call and choose to love that person more than you love that little bit of power that you're holding over them. Same with some of you in your marriages. Some of you had a fight this morning, and right now you have smiling faces. When you get home, the silent treatment's going to be on. You may feel like the other person wronged you, and not that we should ignore the wrongs that have been done to us. We shouldn't. But for the sake of your marriage and your family and the families that your kids are going to lead one day, you need to lay down your pride and choose to love that person with the mindset of Christ. When it comes to work, this might look like you coming to see the vanity of everything you're striving for in life. Some of you, from the moment you get up till the time you go to bed at night, all you do is work, work, work. You, you do, do, do. Keep trying to climb that corporate ladder, believing a lie that when you get to the top, then your life will matter. It's a lie. It's a fool's game. Because just when you get to the top, you'll realize that the ladder never gets you where you're trying to go. Some of you need to see the vanity of everything you're doing. And some of you need to see the value in what you're doing. I think of service workers and caretakers and stay-at-home parents, especially you. Some of you need to be reminded that when you're doing the laundry and cleaning dirty messes and picking up after people who never acknowledge what you do for them, it's then that you're actually most Christ-like. It's there where true greatness lies. As we come to our time of communion and meditate on the meaning of the death of Jesus, I want to close by sharing these words from Jesus where he himself teaches us what he thought about his own death and its implications for us. Jesus says this in Mark 10, 43-45. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Have you ever wondered how that first group of Christians, that band of followers, when Jesus ascended and left them to be there, empowered by the Spirit, but left them, 
how they went from being just a small group to the to largest, greatest, most uh, influential cultural movement to touch the world. It didn't happen by powering up, by taking up the weapons of Rome. It happened when that small group of followers went throughout the empire, founded little groups of people here and there in these cities and showed upside-down, self-giving, sacrificial love to the people they met there. They started building schools. They started building hospitals. They showed love and respect and dignity to people who had been forgotten by the empire's slaves, widows, orphans, women. It wasn't a beautiful group, but at least by the world's standards, but it was magnetic. Those who were loved wanted to be part of that. They were drawn in. They wanted, they wanted to sign up for that kind of king, that kind of kingdom, to become citizens of this type of place. And over time, it literally broke down those structures of Rome and, and created a force to be reckoned with. The church hasn't always been right. The church has a lot of sins in its history. But man, it had some really special roots. I think about the world we live in today. I think people look around the world and say, man, we're losing our influence. I just wonder, instead of trying to regain our influence, and, and, instead of trying to take and make kingdoms like the kingdoms of this world, what if, as Christians, we just started to imitate them in the way that they imitated Jesus? By just, as we go about our lives, showing simple acts of self-giving love to those we meet. At Third City, our vision is love unlimited. Church, my encouragement for you today, this week, go live it out. Don't just put that sticker on your car. Be love unlimited for the people you meet in your schools, your workplaces, your homes, because it's there that a true revelation, revolution is going to happen. It's there where the kingdom of God is made known. Thanks for listening to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. Please join us for one of our worship services at 9, 10, 15, or 11.30 a.m. in Grand Island and at 10, 15 a.m. in Broken Bow on Facebook Live and at thirdcityc.online.church each Sunday. For more information about Third City Christian Church, send email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Call us at 308-384-5038 or visit us online at thirdcityc.org.